When I say Los Alamos from below, I mean that. Although in my field and at the present time, I'm a slightly famous man, at that time, I was not anybody famous at all. I didn't even have a degree when I started to work with the Manhattan Project. Many of the other people who tell you about Los Alamos, people in higher echelons, worried about some big decisions. I worried about no big decisions. I was always flittering about underneath. I was working in my room at Princeton one day when Bob Wilson came in and said that he had been funded to do a job that was a secret and that he wasn't supposed to tell anybody, but he was going to tell me because he knew that as soon as I knew what he was going to do, I'd see that I had to go along with it. So he told me about the problem of separating different isotopes of uranium to ultimately make a bomb. He had a process for separating the isotopes of uranium, different than the one that was ultimately used, that he wanted to try to develop. He told me about it, and he said, there's a meeting. I said I didn't want to do it. He said, all right, there's a meeting at 3 o'clock, I'll see you there. I said, it's all right that you told me your secret, because I'm not going to tell anybody, but I'm not going to do it. So I went back to work on my thesis for about three minutes. Then I began to pace the floor and thinking about this thing. The Germans had Hitler and the possibility of developing an atomic bomb was obvious, and the possibility that they would develop it before we did was very much of a fright. So I decided to go to the meeting at 3 o'clock. By 4 o'clock, I already had a desk in a room and was trying to calculate whether this particular method was limited by the total amount of current that you can get in an ion beam and so forth. I won't go into the details, but I had a desk and I had a paper and I was working as hard as I could and as fast as I could so the fellows who were building the apparatus could do the experiment right there. It was like those moving pictures where you see a piece of equipment go blub blub blub. Every time I'd look up, the thing was getting bigger. What was happening, of course, was that all the boys had decided to work on this and to stop their research in science. All science stopped during the war, except for the little bit that was done at Los Alamos. And that was not much science. It was mostly engineering. All the equipment from different research projects was being put together to make the new apparatus to do the experiment, to try to separate the isotopes of uranium. I stopped my work for the same reason, though I did take a six-week vacation after a while and finished writing my thesis. And I did get my degree just before I got to Los Alamos, so I wasn't quite as far down the scale as I'd led you to believe. One of the first interesting experiences I had in this project at Princeton was meeting great men. I had never met very many great men before. There was an evaluation committee that had to try to help us along and help us ultimately decide which way we were going to separate the uranium. This committee had men like Compton and Tolman and Smith and Uri and Rabbi and Oppenheimer on it. I would sit in because I understood the theory of how our process of separating isotopes worked, and so they'd ask me questions and talk about it. In these discussions, one man would make a point, then Compton, for example, would explain a different point of view. He would say it should be this way, and he was perfectly right. Another guy would say, well, maybe there's this other possibility we have to consider against it. So everybody is disagreeing all around the table. I am surprised and disturbed that Compton doesn't repeat and emphasize his point. Finally, at the end, Tolman, who's the chair, would say, well, having heard all these arguments, I guess it's true that Compton's argument is the best of all, and now we have to go ahead. It was such a shock to me to see that a committee of men could present a whole lot of ideas, each one thinking of a new facet, while remembering what the other fella said, so that, at the end, the decision is made which idea is the best, 
summing it all up without having to say it three times. These were very great men indeed. After the thing went off, there was tremendous excitement at Los Alamos. Everyone had parties, we all ran around. I sat on the end of a jeep and beat drums and so on. But one man, I remember, Bob Wilson, was just sitting there moping. I said, what are you moping about? He said, it's a terrible thing that we made. I said, but you started it. You got us into it. You see, what happened to me, what happened to the rest of us, is that we started for a good reason. Then you're working very hard to accomplish something, and it's a pleasure. It's excitement. And you stop thinking, you know, you just stop. Bob Wilson was the only one that was still thinking about it at that moment. I returned to civilization shortly after that and went to Cornell to teach, and my first impression was a very strange one. I can't understand it anymore, but I felt very strongly then. I sat in a restaurant in New York, for example, and I looked out at the buildings and I began to think, you know, about how much the radius of the Hiroshima bomb damage was, and so forth. How far from here was 34th Street? All of those buildings, all smashed, and so on. And I would go along and I would see people building a bridge, or they'd be making a new road, and I thought, they're crazy. Don't they understand? Don't they understand? Why are they making new things? It's so useless. But fortunately, it's been useless for about 40 years now, hasn't it? So I've been wrong about it being useless, making bridges, and I'm glad those other people had the sense to go ahead. That was an excerpt by Richard Feynman from his essay, Los Alamos from Below. He knew the world would not be the same. Few people laughed. Few people cried. Most people were silent. I remembered the line from the Hindu scripture, the Bhagavad Gita, Vishnu is trying to persuade the prince that he should do his duty and to impress him takes on his multi-armed form and says, now I am become death, the destroyer of worlds. I suppose we all thought that one way or another. Hey there, and thank you for taking the time to listen to this, perhaps my most important, episode of Bandwidth Coast to Coast Yet. At the present event that this is being released, the world looking out from my spot in the middle of North America looks and feels like absolute chaos. A chaos that further hides many of the issues which continue to surround us in the open while completely going unnoticed. One of those issues that has a high ranking on my list of eminent concern is nuclear weapons. I use the parable by David Foster Wallace in his This Is Water speech frequently as the simplest framework to view those types of problems that go completely and unknowingly unnoticed while directly occurring in front of us or even within us. Things that aren't necessarily forgotten, but never became fully aware. For the uninitiated, here's Wallace's parable again. There are two fish swimming along, when an older fish swims by and says, Morning, folks. How's the water? 
The two fish swim merrily along for a bit, when one goes to the other and asks, What the fuck is water? The point of this is the most seemingly obvious banalities are often the most important to keep in mind, or, like fish and water, we can forget the very fabric of the world around us. Like the fabric of our current world peace, where no major conflict between military powers has happened in the past 75 years. A peace that is due to one single innovation. Accept it or not, our current world peace was brokered by the use of nuclear weapons. It's certainly worth noting the massive movement to tie countries' economies together through the use of, quote, modern industry that happened between, quote, capitalist or democratic, quote, West and the communist Soviet bloc. I say, quote, capitalist because I believe we haven't experienced true capitalism until after the Soviet Union folded, but that is for a whole nother episode. The concept of tying economies together along with the Marshall Plan, are due for a big call-out. However, none of it would have been possible had it not been built under the safety blanket provided by nuclear weapons. Suddenly, and violently, massive troop movements and all the industrial warfare introduced in World War I before being perfected in World War II became completely obsolete. For with one drop of a few hundred pounds of metal and wires, a whole city could be disintegrated in an instant. This is something that's incredibly easy to forget. For nearly all of us alive were too young to learn these lessons firsthand. Few have memories of bomb drills in schools, while the vast majority of us grew up in a world where this nuclear peace was completely taken for granted, like fish swimming in a current completely unaware of its force. Sure, there were events like the Fukushima plant in Japan or Chernobyl before it, but neither were at the scale or intention of a nuclear bomb. Yet, dropping a nuclear weapon nearly always gets brought up as a knee-jerk reaction to any overwhelming use of force. Like we heard from Rowan on the first interview in this series, as he was walking down Lower Manhattan, first learning that the plane sticking out of the World Trade Center was done intentionally by terrorists. Learning this, and hearing passerbys in the street suggesting we drop a couple eggs as the plane attacks gave us some sort of casus belli for that level of proportional response. The bomb has been a staple of the world since before the world even knew about the Manhattan Project or the signing of the first peace it brought on the USS Missouri. It was a silent race against time that pulling from Richard Feynman again, even the scientists working on it didn't know what would really happen when they successfully pulled it off. He says in his Los Alamos essay, there were legitimate fears that the chain reaction started by the bomb would ignite the atmosphere on fire. Which brings me back to the moment this all occurred in. The fear for what new industrial horrors the war would bring were so great that the best and brightest minds dropped whatever they were working on and all got together to create the ultimate weapon. Something that the great Albert Einstein had a large hand in starting and later regretted had he known the Germans would never have created the nuclear weapon. The einstein Silzar letter, as it's known, encouraged FDR to race to create the bomb for fear and knowledge that the Nazis were presently working on it. Just imagine if one of those V-2 rockets bombarding London had a nuclear payload. 
everything within the M25 in London would have been gone beyond recognition. That was the set and setting for the creation of the weapon. And the furthering of its development that came from a new Soviet empire and the friction with the, quote, West. The culture, economic, and military friction was there, so if a new war broke out between the powers created out of the end of the last world war, what would the world come to? What would be left of the world? So, as the zeitgeist went, the plan was to build bigger and bigger, more and more efficient and destructive weapons. For if we both had the keys to the destruction, perhaps no one would pull the trigger. It's in that iteration, not the introduction or development of it, but rather the effects and legacy of it that this episode is focused on. As my guest, the chair of the Marshall Islands Nuclear Commission, Ria Moss Christian, will detail. Starting in the 1940s, the U.S. government was using the Marshall Islands as a testing ground to understand the effects and capabilities of nuclear weapons. Long before a global nonstop news cycle, when the world cultures and economies were just starting to get thrown into a connected net with one another, and well before an idea of social media was even in the fringe, an isolated group of people were experiencing the effects of modern war after peace was already brokered. People who for years upon years were thriving in communities on islands that to the uninitiated would look as an isolated vacation spot, but to them was home. The fears, uncertainties, and what-ifs that brought nuclear weapons into existence are unimaginable. What was done from there, though, is known, documented, and felt by the souls living on those islands. We've all become familiar with the idea of an arms race. Stacking up enough don't-fuck-with-any weapons so the other side builds more of their own, creating a cycle that thus ensures by proxy that the weapons are never used. What we've not become familiar with is what effects that has outside of the idea of that race. What happens in reality when the don't-fuck-with-any weapons are atomic reactions? Mutual destruction ensured a world without major conflict. That's a truth, just as much as it was a complete chance. How, though, was that mutual destruction perfected and improved? We will hear in this episode what debt we owe to the civilian people of the Marshall Islands for a choice that wasn't their own, but an effects they've had to endure nonetheless. Effects of having your family removed from their homes before it's wiped off the map in a sudden fiery flash, or mistaking nuclear fallout for snow, and having to want your children to live with that honest mistake. The legacy of these tests isn't far out from our culture. Just like fish swimming in water, it's been obviously hiding right in front of us. And many things I'm sure you've seen. If I'm shifting the narrative a bit for the Matthew Broderick Godzilla movie in the 90s, where the nuclear radiation gives birth to a new skyscraper-sized species of lizard, or in the 2016 movie on Netflix, Hail Caesar, where Lockheed Martin exec joyfully explains the latest nuclear explosion and the financial opportunity of getting into the arms industry in the 50s. Or for an all-ages example, Bikini Bottom Bay in the infamous cartoon SpongeBob SquarePants, which is set on the Bikini Atoll, with his characters being the mutant creatures altered by the radiation from the nuclear tests. As well as numerous other examples from pop culture that I've collected. It's been hiding, in plain sight, is nothing more than a banal mushroom cloud and made near aesthetic with the memory it manufactures. What I hope this episode provides 
is more than images of explosions and the twice-removed concept we get from these tests when they're filtered through a scientific, historical, or pop perspective. But instead, the human stories of those affected, those who never so much as saw someone without melanin in their skin, to then have shipfuls of white people coming ashore, telling them to not eat their food or drink their water days after the radiation fell and already started taking its toll. I struggle with making this intro long, short, not having one, or putting this as a standalone thought. After much deliberation and consulting, I've decided to keep this in, in the hopes of giving all those alive to hear more perspective on the nuclear legacy we've unknowingly inherited. Thank you to all the Marshallese people for the history you've had to endure, the diaspora, social, and health costs emerging from it, and the untaught, indispensable hand you've played in giving the world a safety net to come together as one peaceful species, which paved the way for me to have this interview across the whole Pacific and a day away. And a special thanks to my guest, Rhea Moss Christian, for taking the time to talk with me, sharing her family's story, and giving me more perspective on how to live a good life. I appreciate your listen, and I'm wishing you well. Real quick before the episode starts, if you'd like to find us on your social media platform of choice, sign up for a mailing list to be the first to know about episode drops, know about upcoming guests or opportunities to ask questions and provide suggestions, please visit us at bandwidthpodcast.com. And of course, if you like what you hear, please follow, comment, or subscribe to the pod, however it is that this is getting to your ears. All right. Well, thank you very much for taking the time to talk with me. I'm very, I'm not excited to talk about this topic only because it's, it's one that is sad and heavy, but uh, I'm very excited to talk with you and to learn about it. And thank you very much for taking the time. Um, so, so we have it and we're going to kind of get kicked off in a second. Would you mind introducing yourself? My name is Ria Moss Christian and I am the chair of the Marshall Islands National Nuclear Commission. Uh, this is a commission that was established by the government in 2017 to address outstanding impacts of the U.S. nuclear weapons testing program in the Marshall Islands. Oh, wow. I didn't realize it was such a young, uh, young group. It's a young organization or a young entity, but um, there has been decades of efforts before this entity was established. So this is probably the f- Well, I wouldn't say the first, the second formal national effort toward addressing impacts. There have been ongoing efforts by um, local governments, the island governments um, for the islands that were most affected, individuals. That's been going on since the 50s, since even before the testing finished. Hmm. That's that's interesting. Um, I want to dive into that. But before we do that, I'm going to take an adjacent step and I want to get to know you like a little bit more. And I always ask the first time, and I hope you come on more, but for the first time that someone's a guest, I like to ask the same question, which is, what do you like to do that makes you happy? I don't know why that's always such a hard question to answer. (laughs) I feel like, 
I feel like um, most days I'm, I'm really content, but I don't think it's from doing anything particularly interesting or exciting. <laughs> um, Just the way you live your yeah. life, which I guess is great in itself, right? Yeah. And I think what that, I guess what that's telling me is that I'm, I'm pretty lucky because um, like I said, I think most days I'm feeling fairly content and it's just working from home and raising my six-year-old daughter and spending time with family, which is probably a common answer for most, I would think. Yeah, that's, I feel like there's a lot we can all learn from that. Just contentment, right? <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, it's funny. I, I ask that question a lot and the spectrum of answers I get is always interesting. Uh, and, and one of them I, I always go back to is uh, a historian who said, there's no such thing as happiness and I just try to be content. So I, I think mm-hmm. your answer is actually very close to his. <laughs> I am practical to a fault. <laughs> no, nothing wrong with that. As long as you balance it <laughs> enough with rationality occasionally. Occasionally. <laughs> yes. Um, okay. So I, in 2018, um, so just so you know, I'm a bit of a nut when it comes to, uh, nuclear weapons. I study it quite a lot. Um, one of the people I study a lot is Richard Feynman and he was one, he worked on the Manhattan project. Um, and he's kind of, after reading one of his books, um, I've kind of kept a log on all nuclear news. Um, because he, he has a story in one of his books where he explains the first test in Nevada that was successful and how there was one individual that was standing off to the side and everyone else was cheering. And this guy looked like uh, he had a blank stare. And he asked, why do you have such a blank stare? Uh, why aren't you cheering? And he goes, we were so wrapped up in what we were doing. I don't know what we just said. I don't know what we just accomplished. Um, and that always stuck with me. So ever since then, I kind of always have kept um, in the news of, you know, arms agreements or disagreements or dissolvings um, and things like that. So in 2018, when I came across an article in the LA Times about the Runet Dome, um, in the Marshall Islands, um, I took a particular interest in it. Uh, so would you mind just kind of very briefly uh, introduce to us the, the Runet Dome? And then I want to go backwards in time from there and, and talk about the, the testing and then how that even got there in the first place. And I think we're going to actually end up coming back to Nevada and that first test site again, too. Okay. Well, the Runet Dome is a facility. It is a physical facility that sits on Runet Island in Inuitak Atoll in the Northern Marshall Islands. So Runet Dome is more of a, a nickname, but obviously not in, in an endearing way. Um, it is in fact a low level nuclear waste facility if we're being technical. Um, Inuitak Atoll was the site of 43 atmospheric nuclear tests. Um, They experienced the bulk of the tests that were conducted in the Marshall Islands. So in the 70s, the US government was looking to clean up some of these atolls and clean up has to be taken very loosely because you can't really clean up radiation. So it was an effort to, I guess, make the island safe for, um, for communities, um, but even safe is a relative term as well. So um, the U.S. brought in 
um, military vets or military personnel and contractors from Department of Energy. Um, it was a multi-agency effort to scrape the topsoil off of Rennet Island, on Rennet Island and some of the islets around there and contain them in this dome, this concrete dome. When they constructed the dome, they didn't line the crater. There was a crater from one of the bomb tests, but they didn't line it. And they put a lot of, there was a lot of debris. The structure, if you look at the diagrams, the structures um, that are available in Department of Defense documents and Atomic Energy doc Commission documents, you see a, a, several layers under this dome where the bottom layers, at the, which are at, at um, coastal tide, they're at uh, groundwater level, ground level, sea level, um, are mainly debris and maybe some equipment that's not um, supposedly, um, doesn't contain any radiations or toxins. And then as you go up the levels of this dome, the, the top layer of the dome is where the radiation or radioactive equipment is placed. And then the dome was capped off with this concrete. Um, according to the Department of Energy, the, there is less than 1% of plutonium in the dome, which means that more than 99% of the plutonium is outside the dome, which calls into question the whole idea of cleaning up the islands or making them safe. So here sits this unlined concrete covered dome at sea level um, at the edge of an island that is prone to high tide events, uh, extreme weather events, that, and with plutonium inside. <clears throat> the Runet Dome for us is kind of a, it's the physical symbol, right? It's a physical symbol of what's left behind by the nuclear testing. And what we have to remember is that, it, yes, it's problematic. This is a low-level nuclear waste facility. What does this mean for the community that's living nearby in Inuitak Atoll? What does this mean for the marine life adjacent in the lagoon to the, to the dome? What does this mean if there's extreme weather events, um, climate change, sea level rise? What does all of this mean? But also, what about everything that's still outside the dome? and all the plutonium that's sitting in the sediment in the lagoon and buried in crypts around the island, which, we're, which is information that we're just starting to learn and, and is generating more questions for us. Um, and other, other radionuclides that are still in existence on that island. And we're also learning that there's potential contamination there by, of um, beryllium which is a much more dangerous toxin than plutonium. So you have this situation where you've got all of these um, toxins and radionuclides that are just sitting out there on this isolated island, on an isolated atoll, uh, right there at sea level. And, and there's just, there's very little protection. Actually, there's no protection. There's no fence around the island. There's, not, there's no security. Um, if you compare this to Hanford, for example, the, 
nuclear facility in Washington. Hanford has, has incredible security, armed guards, I believe, and fences around this facility to keep people out, but to keep people safe. And then you have the Runet Dome, which is the other extreme of the, of the spectrum of safety. Um, every time I'm saying safety, I'm putting air quotes because it's just, I don't think you can ever expect um, uh, full safety. It'll never be restored to what it was. But that's how Runet Dome got there. So that was constructed in, in the late 70s and completed around 1980 um, and then left. So there it sits. Wow, um, that's, a, that's a stark picture. Um, I, can definitely I can definitely see uh, imperial scars. That's what I've been like obsessing about and, and pre uh, prepping for this is the, the scar that this dome has to have leave um, and being able to kind of see it. It's, and especially seeing that, so if I'm hearing you right, 99% um, of the actual radiation that is caused by these 43 atmospheric detonations happens, that are, is not being contained in the, in the dome. So 99% of the most radioactive pieces of this is not actually even being contained inside this concrete. Is that right? That is according to DOE's research and reports that, yeah, most of the plutonium is outside the dome in the, in the lagoon primarily and, and likely in the sediment in the lagoon floor. So, so just in shallow water right there in the outside of the, the island. Um, so what were these, these atmospheric detonations? What, when did they start and, and what kind of were they? So they, the testing started in 1946 and the last test was in 1958. There were 67 total. So let me see, I'll give you some stats to kind of put things into perspective. Um, 23 of the tests were on Bikini Atoll, 43 were at Inuitok Atoll, plus one failed test, but that failed test still resulted in a lot of fallout uh, and contamination. Um, the 67 tests were equivalent to 108 megatons total yield, which is the equivalent yield of more than 7,000 Hiroshima bombs. 93 times the total of Nevada atmospheric tests and the equivalent yield of 1.6 Hiroshima-sized bombs fired every day for 12 years in the Marshall Islands. Wow. So just to give you an idea of scale. Yeah, that is huge. So this was, and how many years was this the course of? So it was 1946, and, and was this the over until, the course of just a few years, or was this over the course of a decade? Until 1958, so about 12 years or so. <laughs> Wow. Um, okay. Um, I'm kind of at a loss for words with that. Uh, what, how close are people living to these islands? Were there people living on the, I'm assuming I, I actually know this from researching some, some people were actually forcibly moved in order to do testing. Right. And then was there, how, what was the closest kind of major settlement toward, you know, to these and were they experiencing effects of it? in that 12 year period or is it kind of taking time? Oh, so yes. So the Bikini Atoll community was relocated and the Inuitok Atoll community was also relocated. 
but the other, the nearby communities were within several hundred miles. They weren't relocated. So included in that test series was the infamous Bravo shot, which was the largest hydrogen bomb um, tested by the U.S., equivalent to a thousand Hiroshima-sized bombs. And for that test, that was in 1954, the fallout from that test rained over neighboring atolls, Rongelap, Utrecht, and, and others. But this is where we start to diverge um, with the U.S. account of who was actually affected by the testing. So Rangelap and Utrecht communities are known as sort of the downwinders um, who experienced the fallout from that massive hydrogen bomb test. And um, they were not relocated before that test. Um, there are different accounts of whether the U.S. knew that the winds had shifted and would be carrying that fallout toward populated islands. Um, I think it depends on who you talk to. <laughs> the documents are there. They're, most of those documents are declassified. But following that test, a project came up known as Project 4.1 that was essentially human radiation studies. And the people from Rongelap were became part of um, what were called medical studies by the US to understand the impacts of the radiation fallout on their bodies. Um, except that the testing or the studies were being done by Brookhaven National Laboratory. Not a hospital, <laughs> um, physicians for sure, but you know, you, intuitively you have to ask yourself, why is a laboratory, a weapons laboratory radiation lab doing medical exams, examinations and medical monitoring. So project 4.1 is kind of a different story, but um, that was, that's another piece of the nuclear history. So there's the bomb tests where people had to be relocated and remain dislocated from their islands. And then there's the communities that experienced the fallout, but were not relocated and are, and are still experiencing the health effects. Some of the islands, um, the, doc, the declassified documents show that other islands experienced some level of fallout as well, but they were not evacuated. Um, there's another northern atoll called Ailuk, where my mother grew up. And she was 10 years old when the 1954 bomb test took place. And she passed away. She passed away from stomach cancer almost nine years ago now. And sorry for your loss. She, thank you. And she told us she told us stories growing up and about how she remembered when the U.S. Navy ship came ashore and it was the first time that she'd seen a white man and she was scared and she remembered hearing the blast and everybody running into the center of the island and then the ship coming ashore a couple of days later and telling everyone not to eat the coconuts or the breadfruit or drink the rainwater for a little while. Um, I don't know how much information they were given. Um, she was 10 years old, so it was her 10-year-old memory sharing those stories with us. But um, this was a population that was not 
relocated before that test, but most definitely experienced fallout. And it's not the only one. There are other Northern Atolls in that area who have stories and accounts of illnesses um, that were unheard of before then. Wow. So your mother is 10 years old. Uh, there's an explosion. So I, I actually was looking at pictures and some of these people in communities that were not that far away would have been able to see and, and feel mm -hmm. that explosion as it goes off. And then somebody comes ashore several days later, which I think is uh, tragically ironic and says, don't eat the coconuts and drink the rainwater that you've been doing for the several days since that explosion. Uh, and I mean, don't, don't take this as me, uh, uh, undercutting anybody like the, or, or trying to rationalize anything, but the American government didn't have that grave an understanding of what nuclear fallout would do. They had a way better understanding of what it would do than the people that were experiencing it though. So mm -hmm. it, it, this is obviously the first of what I'm thinking I'm going to find many examples of them grossly not handling the situation in which they were creating. Um, wow. Um, okay. I want to take like, a couple of years back in time from when it started in 1946. So, and I, and I want to ask this question broadly, but take it whichever direction you want to go with, which is how did the U S get the ability to be detonating bombs in the Marshall islands, which for anyone who's listening, I encourage you to go to Google maps or whichever open street maps, actually, I would encourage you to go to uh, and take a look at uh, where the Marshall islands are, which is they're in the Pacific slightly Northeast of, of Australia, just generally speaking. Um, so how did the U.S. come to be able to do this um, and get away with it? Well, get away with it, I think, is a question I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hold that one. How did the U.S. get to the position to be able to have uh, this territory of land that they're you know, exploding and re relocating people and then coming in a few days later? Following the end of World War II, the Marshall Islands, Micronesia, Palau, we all became trust territories of the United States. Um, so we were under the UN Trusteeship Council, the US became the new administrator for these islands following the end of the war. Um, you know, the trusteeship, that was supposed to be a time where with the US as a new administrator to look after the well-being and the safety um, and you know, instead they, they look at the islands as a testing ground. And so the testing began shortly after that. Um, your, your knowledge and details of the initial testing in the U.S. is probably sharper than mine, but that's, you know, testing in the U.S. is one thing, right? You can think of the political ramifications there and, and just all the factors that are gonna, that are gonna go into whether or not you want to continue doing that in your own backyard or you're going to take it somewhere else to someone else's backyard, even though it is technically the U.S. backyard as an administrator of these islands and the, under the trusteeship. But now this backyard is very isolated, far away, and relatively unknown to the rest of the world. Um, no question our islands are isolated. No question up in the north that they're there's not a lot, we're far away from other ma major populations. And so 
yeah, you can kind of see the decision, how, how the decision makers come to this conclusion that this is the best place to go and test atmospheric weapons. We're out in the middle of nowhere. There were petitions, Marshallese petitioned the UN around that time to, um, after the first several bomb tests to stop, to stop, to have these tests stopped unsuccessfully and the testing continued. But you know, at the time we were not self-governing. Um, the US had full control of these islands. It was the Cold War. Um, you know, I, I under, your question, how did they get away with it? Well, I think there are lots of reasons and there are lots of, probably lots of um, arguments you can make how they got away with it. But, you know, in the middle of the Cold War era after the end of a brutal world war, what can you do as a small island population, um, you know, who, who largely been pawns the, um, up until that point, you know, before the U.S. was there, the Japanese were there, and then the Germans and the Spanish. And so we have a long history of, of Western powers and Western rule coming in and dictating what happens in our islands. The nuclear test was just another era of the same. Yeah, imperial scar scars. That's what I keep thinking about. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, uh, so I, I know a, a bit about uh, the nuclear testing in the, the U.S. And uh, I know they did it in Las Vegas, or not in Las Vegas, they did it in, in central Nevada, actually. Um, and the reason for that was because it was the easiest to hide from the rest of the world as to what was happening. Um, and one of the interesting things that uh, Richard Feynman gets into is they didn't know if the first test that they did that was successful, if it was going to set the atmosphere on fire. Mm -hmm. So they legitimately didn't know if they were going to cause a, a catastrophic event that would strikingly alter the entire uh, of the earth. Um, so, you know, I, I asked it almost, you know, in uh, rhetorically, you know, way, because it's obvious that they would choose somewhere that was in the middle of so when, you, when I asked you, I remember asking you this when we first started corresponding, and I said, can you tell me what island you're on? Because I'm curious to see where it is. And I had such amount of unease seeing that you were just this little dot in the middle of nowhere. Uh, and someone's <laughs> from the Midwest where everything's flat and just the earth is an ocean in every direction. I got very uneasy <laughs> thinking about, you know, being thousands of miles away uh, from anywhere else and just having, you know, ocean, which living on the coast, I can tell you the ocean is not to be toyed with. Um, mm -hmm. so, you know, it, it makes sense that in an era where, um, you know, the end of world war two, everyone thought the U S was just going to keep going. They thought they were going to keep going East and they were going to, you know, become the next Imperial power. And in a lot of the ways they did, um, but they did it in a way that everyone was kind of surprised. And to your point, everyone was exhausted from what was happening for, you know, decades at that point. Um, so, you know, choosing a spot that's far off in the middle of, you know, the ocean and, uh, you know, with the people that aren't connected to the rest of the world in this way that everyone else is. There, there wasn't a way to telegram the, you know, USA Today or the New York Times and say, this is what's happening. Um, so, you know, it, it's almost like it was an information blackout there. Um, so so that, that makes, it's an unfortunate event that makes sense why they would choose that to try to, to do that. But the other part of it that makes me, uh, I, I'm going to try to check my, my furiousness right now. Uh, curiosity. I'm not sure how to conjugate that. Um, is, uh, 
you know, like the, the first initial tests, they really, even when they dropped the bomb on, you know, Hiroshima and Nagasaki, they didn't necessarily know what that was going to do. Um, so then to ramp it up to the level of a thousand, what that one was, you know, what Fatboy was, um, is quite startling, especially to do it in an area of an ocean, um, which, with, which I want to get into with you is, you know, radiation that we know from Chernobyl went around the world, right? Um, and radiation in an ocean with jet streams um, affects large swaths of, of ecosystems and, and, and all types of life that go in there. Um, so that's rather startling to hear. Um, okay, so the U.S. kind of comes into uh, governance of these atolls and these islands. Um, and within a year of doing that, they start testing uh, on there, um, and they start relocating people. Um, and this went on for 12 years, which is astounding. Um, when, did, did, was there ever at any point other than having this project 4.1, which I, I, I want to ask a couple more questions on. So was there ever anything outside of that trying to provide any type of assistance to either, uh, I mean, straight up the diet, like the, the, the coconuts being affected. I mean, that, that's, that's not a small thing uh, to be affected. Like your, your food supplies, your, your fresh water supplies. Was there any effort within those 12 years or without those 12 years, other than having, you know, a bunch of scientists, not doctors come in and, and kind of understand the effects. Was there ever anything? Not necessarily. So it's sort of like an accumulation of knowledge over time because Marshallese weren't the only ones who were affected by the, the tests. The U.S. also exposed its own military personnel to the tests. Um, I think that there were something, I mean, no question that I think everyone knew these were going to be destructive and harmful. I think the extent and the degree is what was unknown. And I think this is where we start to maybe get into opining a bit, you know, and as a Marshallese, I'm half Marshallese and I'm half American. And I've, I studied this history, I studied my history, my Marshallese history a little bit in college, but I grew up learning about it from my mom. But, you know, there are times when I'm, when I'm like you, I'm furious, I'm thinking, how is this, how are we even dealing with this situation still? And then in times I have a very rational mind and I think, well, I kind of see where, you know, got this major millet, world military power looking to try learn more about how much power they actually have and potentially um, deter a, a third world war and, and other rising powers. I get all that. And I think that's more of my intellectual mind because I studied politics but, um, or international politics. But um, It's like, so, sorry, I'm trying to gather my thoughts because there are so many different directions you can go in in this, um, in this discussion. But, you know, people were relocated. 
And then they were brought back at certain points because the U.S. thought they were, the islands were safe enough, and then they were removed again. But people were also relocated to islands where they were, basically couldn't survive and famines occurred. I mean, there was so much about this that was in a lot of ways trial and error. And the Marshallese were really at the whim of the U.S. and trusting the U.S. to do what was best for them. So putting, relocating them to safe places where they could survive. And, you, and you, you know, we know so much more now, of course, but at the time, if you can imagine yourself in this situation where you don't, ha you don't have any idea what you're agreeing to, to be relocated, you're trusting this new administrator that they're going to take care of you and do, and then, you know, you'll temporarily go live somewhere else and come back. I mean, I really think the U.S. believed that too, at, to some degree. I don't think they were fully honest and, and genuine about what could potentially go wrong or could potentially happen. But I do think there was probably some level of faith that, yeah, we could probably come back to this. We could restore things. We can come back. That was a time of discovery, a great scientific discovery. There was a lot of experimenting going on. This is essentially experiments. But then when you start, you know, you can understand that maybe on an intellectual level, right? You just take the human, maybe take the human element out of it a little bit, and you think purely scientific and military power. That's one realm. But then you go into the human part, and that's the part we, where we have to stay. We have to stay there because people continue to be affected. I mean, these were, these were real people. These are my family members, you know, my mother and her family on this island and my colleagues on the other islands and people who through generations, this next generation, we don't know for sure the generational impact, but for sure, there is a long-term health impact to being removed from your land where your life is based in subsistence lifestyle, where you're farming and growing your food and living off the land to a lifestyle where everything you're eating is imported. And you know that that's not a very good diet when you're depending on imported food. And a lot of those displaced communities are now receiving food aid from USDA. Um, and their lifestyles have changed as a result. Taste buds change. I mean, these things evolve naturally anyways. But when it's sort of forced upon you because of this kind of tragic reason, it just makes the whole thing that much more devastating and it's just, it's harder to combat. So the issues that we're dealing with now, it's not only contaminated islands, islands that remain unsafe for habitation where people can't go back. And, you know, in Marshallese culture, we're connected to our land. Our identity comes from our land. When you don't have land, you don't have self, you know, sense of self, where's your place? So when you're removed from your land, that's already, that's one form of violence uh, that occurs from this experience. And then the second form is what happens to your health. And that is generational for sure. So we have high cancer rates, diabetes, um, all kinds of lifestyle associated illnesses, um, 
that I think you can trace, absolutely you can trace to this nuclear history and this nuclear legacy. Of course, we understand that as, as you know, the world becomes more interconnected, as we you know, become more globalized and people learn more and they're more educated and they move around more, yes, things are gonna change. Your culture is gonna change, it's gonna evolve, your lifestyle, yes, all of that. But there is this element in the Marshall Islands that is very much linked to nuclear testing and the, in some ways, maybe the rapid forcing of these changes or the, the undue influence of these changes um, on these changes that are irreversible. Um, in the Nuclear Commission, one of our highest priorities is healthcare and addressing healthcare needs. There is no cancer care in the Marshall Islands. So if you get cancer, you have to be referred overseas. So there's additional displacement. So now you're removed again from your community and your family who you need the most when you're going through any kind of medical treatment. And now you have to be sent overseas to have treatment. Um, maybe not all cancers are attributed to radiation. I'm not suggesting that necessarily, but we definitely have high incidences of cancer that um, are linked to the nuclear testing. What's, what, I don't know how to, I don't know what the metric or yardstick is for rates of cancer, but how high is your rates of cancer versus a, statistical norm and that is a number i don't have off the top of my head for you um that's okay yeah that's quite all right um i want to i want to go back to that uh some of the things you said of understanding the duality of, of both what the u.s was doing and and what you know was inflicted upon the marshallese um i definitely can i, I definitely sympathize with the way that you were pointing those dualities of one you know you have a new superpower that unlocked uh, a godlike power to destroy in an instant um, and didn't know what exactly that came with it while at the same time realizing that there was, um, you know, I, almost almost 40 years of suffering at that point, right? Because, I mean, World War One and World War Two are almost just like one big, long, drawn-out play. Um, and then just the, the sheer acts of horror and the scale of industrial combat and war just kind of ramped everything up right so i definitely can I, I definitely can sympathize with that intellectual stance but i think it was a lot of willful ignorance on the part of of the u.s to say uh you know we we understand there's going to be some issues here but where else are we going to go maybe right or, or something along those lines i think they had to have had some understanding of it um just from the the scientists going into hiroshima you know after the the armistice alone um, would lead me to believe that. Um, but, you know, the, there's a lot of words I, I kind of like a lot. Um, and one of them is uh, conundrum. And I think what, what this is, is a very big conundrum. Um, because, you know, we can understand the history that got there. But I think the, the biggest point of it is, you know, in globalization, um, which is really what you were describing there, right? Like, you can get globalized by having uh, the Beastie Boys play on your radio and a McDonald's go up and down the street, right? That's kind of like a soft, uh, you know, globalization. And, you know, over time, you know, the culture will adjust from, you know, whatever it is that you're wearing to maybe blue jeans and, you know, whatever else, right? Kind of that American globalization because 
um, like it or not, you know, the, the biggest thing that America exports is culture. And, and that's a fact. Um, so, you know, this interconnected world and, you know, capital flowing, um, you can get globalized that way, right? Um, or you can get globalized in a way of, we just had four decades of, of war and in, in the Marshallese case, you know, umpteen decades of, you know, the U.S. called it stewardship, but it was imperial control, right? Like it was, you know, one imperial power over the other. And, uh, you know, frankly speaking, the Marshall Islands don't have very many resources, but it's a very good place to stop and refuel and then keep going, right? So it was strategic for them to have these, these other imperial powers. So uh, I can understand that the, the part of the, the Marshallese to say, like, I'm going to, uh, you said it, that they trusted America, you know, I can understand why they would, because, you know, it's, you have this zeitgeist of America could have kept rolling and they decided not to, um, you know, we've had all of these, these problems and suffering and, and, and further conundrums of what a Japanese imperial legacy was or a Spanish before that, um, to say, okay, sure, we will relocate from an area that we have lived for eons um, and trust that it's okay. But unknowingly, in doing so, you're actually signing the, the lease to be able to never go back there again for eons again. Um, mm -hmm. and, and, and I think that that's important because I think it's important. I struggle with if anybody should have the right to a nuclear weapon, to be honest, because I, I think it is such an immense amount of, of power. I don't, I fundamentally disagree with the fact that we have evolved to a point to be able to have that power. I don't think that we have uh, I, I, in, in any way. Um, so I struggle with that, but to then say, you know, we're going to test in this certain area to see what it exactly it, it is and, and take out of the equation, what is that going to do for the legacy of, of individuals that were there and what suffering are we leaving behind? Um, I think is an awful amount of willful ignorance, mm -hmm. which to your point, perhaps that was also the age they lived in because of the general scientific explosion, you know, like 1938 to 1945 was an incredible span of technology that, uh, you know, maybe it's only a second to what we're going to see in the next couple of years with genetics. But um, yeah, that's, that's a uh, hell of a scar to have there. Um, so you, you, okay. So you said 12 years of testing um, and people re relocated, um, how, was there effects from these during that time period? Were people starting to see effects from it? Like, I know you said that that project 4.1 was happening, uh, during this, but was it something that outside of like the abject, uh, okay. So even in the example of people being relocated and then being told, Oh, sorry, you got to go back again. W were the Marshallese starting to get wise to the fact that this that that the U.S. is not to be trusted. Oh yeah, we have you know our history activists, Marshallese activists. Like I said, there were petitions to the United Nations by Marsh, certain Marshallese individuals to stop the testing um, before the before 1958. Um, there was so there. This is where I start to feel a bit uncomfortable talking about because the health impacts that people experienced and particularly women and reproductive health are incredibly, they're horrific. 
and they're really personal stories. And some of, some of these women have shared them globally. They've traveled the world and spoken to international audiences, um, trying to appeal to the greater moral good of the international community in the United States. These stories have been told in front of US Congress. Um, they're just incredibly sad, the, the impacts um, on reproductive health for women in particular, um, the birth of deformed babies, um, multiple, multiple miscarriages, effects, health effects that were never seen before. So these start happening fairly soon after the testing is finished. Um, but the response seems to be just more studies, more medical studies, more you know, scientific studies, um, but no real care, no real medical care. Um, and I think this is also, this is a time when people are, they just, there's so much that's scary and new and, and I think we would, anyone would feel this way now if something's scary and new. You don't know if what's being, if the way you're being treated for that is the right way. Oftentimes you don't realize it till later. Um, I think that's true even now for a lot of our, for our health system and some of the ways that our, our illnesses or conditions are treated. You don't know things. You're not a doctor. You trust the doctor. So, um, yeah, I think people were feeling these impacts and they were just being studied more and documented, but I don't think people were getting the care they needed. And I think this is systemic in the U.S. healthcare system anyways, where the, it's the illness is treated kind of um, in isolation of the person. So you don't have that, um, that holistic, that whole body or that whole person, your mind, your body, everything's connected. You don't get that kind of medical care. It's pretty rare if you do. I'm not suggesting that it's like that everywhere, but I think that was kind of how it was um, for a lot of Marshallese that were experiencing this. And then you had language barriers, you had cultural barriers. So you just had so many things factoring into this just poorly, poorly handled after effect of the testing on human life. Um, so it was, see, it, I, go ahead. Yeah, keep going. It, it was obviously very uh, seen and viscerally felt while this was happening. Yeah, very much so. I mean, when that Bravo shot, when the fallout was raining down on the people on Rongelap, there's there are stark photos. You might have seen these photos. They're just of children with burned skin. And, you know, the accounts told by those people were that they thought it was snow. They didn't know. They weren't warned. So... Yeah, they're feeling the effects immediately in that case. Um, and then the studies begin. But there's very little information that's being shared about what's happening with these people. What's happening to their bodies? Yeah, and there was no uh, Twitter to be able to all of a sudden broadcast to the world uh, some pretty stark images and, and hope that they don't uh, diminish it in the right. algorithm or something. <laughs> but like I said, it's not like you go get a second opinion. It's not like you have any other information on your own to question what's being done. You just, you know, you've, 
you're just trusting the authorities in this case, the medical authorities, scientific authorities, the US authorities to have your best interests in mind when they're checking your skin or your body for, for illness. I can't even begin to imagine what that was like for people. And that's why I start to feel a bit uncomfortable talking about it because it is such an intensely personal experience, I'm sure. And I don't want my talking about it to diminish or um, lessen the impact that that had on so many people. I appreciate you talking about it. Nonetheless, I, I understand that you don't want to take somebody's uh, individual suffering and put it into a number or a statistic. And, and I, I understand that. I, I appreciate you laying that out in, in, uh, in either case though. Um, you know, um, when I was on a walk shortly after I uh, saw that uh, where your island was and how, how remote uh, in the ocean it was, uh, what came to me um, was I, I went on a dive a few years ago into, into Polynesian culture um, and some of the things they did to, with like mapping out currents and wind patterns and, and some of these like maps, these like stick maps that they do. And it's quite amazing. Um, and what it brought to me back when I was thinking about where you live is such an appreciation for the fact that people were able to find these islands and live on them for eons and not just live, but thrive. Right. Mm -hmm. um, which is really amazing. Um, and, and I think that that's, that's something not to get lost in all of this because, you know, if a baby was born at any other time before this, the people, you know, you know the Marshallese people would have been able to figure out how to raise that baby quite well. Um, so mm -hmm. when they're struck with something, um, and there, it, there's just no questions, or there's all there is is questions, right? There's no answers, um, like some of the ways in which you were describing. I couldn't imagine the amount of fear and uncertainty and trauma that that would cause, because you know, I mean, you, you go from you go from never being able, never seeing somebody of another race before, which you know to us is something that I'm not sure many people even think of, right? Um, and like, that was a real thing that was starting to happen at this time, right? Like the forties was the, the forties into the fifties was the time of, you know, we now look about, back upon it as if it was like this dandy time. Um, but really it was this time of shock where the world was like, nope, we're going to have a literal photograph on everything. And you're going to see how everything is. And it was really like the, the true age of national geographic in a way, right. Where it's like, mm -hmm. you're going to see what these other you know, areas are, and we're going to come budding up against all of this, right? Um, so to go from, you know, a situation where, you know, you're feeling a little ill, and your people have an understanding of the region in which you live, which, once again, it didn't just extend to the land, it extended into the ocean and how to, you know, harvest, you know, anything that you would need from there and being able to understand how to treat an illness with that and have everything that you would need on these atolls and these small islands, to then going to it feeling and looking like a sun exploded a few hundred miles away from you and it's raining something that you think is snow which you've never seen before um and you know naively it is naively thinking it's snow and then naively having it hurt you but you don't have any other choice but to be naive because your trust is put into a power greater than your own um is it is a view that i appreciate you still you know, despite being uncomfortable, expounded upon, because I think it's important to understand that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, 
so that's that's uh unfortunate that it was uh known about and then continued um when it stopped was there any any in- indication as to why it stopped or did it just stop because they some bureaucrats or team of bureaucrats had uh accepted this as the you know logical ending point or did it just kind was there some type of movement and activism that got the testing to stop or did it just kind of stop one day and then uh what would that be uh 20 or 18 years later all of a sudden they build a dome yeah actually that's a really good question i don't know that i've ever checked into reasons why testing stopped the last test was in august 1958 i believe um I'm not sure I know exactly if there was a specific event or what decision. Um, testing continued. I mean, the U.S. continued to test nuclear weapons. It just stopped in the Marshall Islands. Um, that's okay. Uh, that's yeah. okay. I'm going to follow up on that one. That's not something we've ever really discussed too much um, when we've talked about the legacy. Is we all know when it started and sort of why, but not really why it ended. Hmm. Um. So as this is going on in this, you know, 12 years, the first 12 years of, uh, uh, you know, actually, let me, let me start in the present day. Um, presently is just to kind of give the listeners a basic basis of understanding is the Marshallese and the Marshall Islands, their own, uh, are they self-sovereign? Yeah, we are an independent country. We have our own passports. We use the U S dollar. And we're in what's called a compact of free association, which allows um, immigration privileges for Marshallese living and working in the United States. Okay, thank you for setting that up. Um, So is that, that's kind of where the diaspora that I'm, I'm taking it goes. So to kind of go back to what I was saying, you know, going from a situation where you have everything at your disposal that you that you know how to treat whatever illnesses may happen to now being in a situation where you have new at least uh, a higher degree of new illnesses uh, that you didn't have before and you have to actually leave the islands in order to to get treatment because like i said I, I can understand that there um may not be all the services that you would need there so you have to leave so is that where most people go when they need treatment let's just say for cancer or any any number of other things Yes, mostly to the U.S., but also to the Philippines. But under our compact with the U.S., there was a special program, two, two different medical programs set up for communities that were affected by the nuclear testing program. So this is another term I'm going to use loosely, affected, because all of the Marshall Islands was affected. But the response from the U.S. has limited that um, those communities to those from the four northern atolls. What's a, ter- a term, it's a political construct uh, called the four atolls, where, which is Bikini and Uetak, where the testing, where the test took place, Rongalap and Utrik, where the fallout occurred. So these are the limitations of the U.S. recognition and acknowledgement of affected communities by the nuclear testing program. We don't agree with that in the Marshall Islands, so I just want to make that point. But that's the context for the programs that we have now for medical assistance 
for those provided for radiation related illnesses. So in the compact, section 177 is the nuclear section and it sets up a health program for people from those four atolls with a separate budget um, to have kind of separate medical care. It, the program operates within the hospital back in Madro, but it's sort of, it's administered differently because it's directly, um, it stems directly from this uh, section 177 radiation impact provision of the compact. Um, and then there's the DOE medical monitoring program, which is for the people from Rongelap and Utrecht who experienced the Bravo test fallout. So you have these two separate medical programs provided by the US in response to radiation impacts for these very specific communities. And the DOE medical program operates out of Hawaii. The patients go there. Um, 177 is more like a clinic where they have their own funding for medical supplies and things. All cancer patients are referred from the through the hospital at home, either to the Philippines. If you're in one of these programs, you're probably gonna go to the US for treatment. Um, but the referral decisions, I'm not sure exactly how they're made. Um, a lot of people go to the US. But a lot of people will go to the U.S. also just because they also already have family there. So there's, you know, there's, you see the pattern of communities where people go and get health care where there's communities so they can be near, you know, families and things like that. Um, so that's the situation now. And one of our goals in the Nuclear Commission long term is to establish that national cancer care so that people can be home with their families and not further dislocated. Um, it would be a massive undertaking because, I mean, cancer treatment every, and everything that comes with it is just incredibly in, involved and requires a lot of infrastructure that would that'll take a lot for us to develop. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm rooting for you all um, in more <laughs> ways than one. Um, so you, you, meant, you made a mention earlier that you said... Um, there's a point, uh, so you said there's a point in the narrative where there's a divergence from the accounts of uh, the American and from the uh, Marshallese. Is that part of it? Is the designation of the four atolls um, and the fallout um, part of it where, if I'm summarizing this correctly, um, the US government's stance is that only these four, four atolls or this one region that they've kind of drawn a line over or the, all that's affected where the Marshallese stance is, hey there, buddy, it's, it's all of the, the chains. Yeah, it's a narrative. It's a political narrative. Um, and it's difficult to challenge partly because you know, a, lot of, a lot of that's been internalized in the Marshall Islands too. And um, how so? We have had an, well, if you're from the four atoll communities, um, I have to choose my words carefully. So, and you're, <laughs> and you have access to these special programs and um, you have certain claims with the tribunal, which we can talk about later too. Um, no question these islands were 
the experience the brunt of the fallout or the in the impact no question whatsoever but focusing on them in the way that the US has that a lot of Marshallese have agreed with has erased the experiences and the impacts that people on other islands in the Marshall Islands have also felt um, like my mother's for example and others and um, you know we're kind of calling that group the mid-range atolls um, and they're part of our effort now in discussions with the US, which we can also talk about a little bit later as well. But um, the nationwide radiological study that we had done in the late 90s definitely showed that all of the Marshall Islands experienced some level of radiation. Definitely the southern atolls had less than in the north, no question. And that's, that's scientific data to show that. But I think if we're going to be truthful and honest about our legacy, we do have to, we have to recognize that this, the testing impacted the entire country, which also means that it, it probably in, impacted most of the region. You know, and we, you know, we know Guam, Guam continues to fight for um, compensation for itself based on the testing that took place in the Marshall Islands. I don't think these are wild claims. I think there's, there's scientific basis here, but you know, we're dealing with a massive amount of information in declassified documents and information that's still not declassified. There's still a lot of classified information too. And a political narrative that has taken hold for many years about the extent of the impact, um, not only geographically, but also in terms of health and in the environment. So the These imagine are the narratives that we're fighting against or that we're working against. Yeah. So yeah, I can imagine the uh, conundrum that that is with mm -hmm. uh, this imaginary political line creating a real riff within communities of who has access to care um, mm -hmm. and and throughout from that. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, that's. Uh, that's I, that's very uh, tenuous. I can understand that. Um, that's that's got to be tough. Um, so the the U.S. When did they take that stance of admitting at least that those that four those four atolls and and kind of when did that compact come into to place? That came in. The compact was signed in 1986. So that would have been a period leading up to that in negotiations. And those four atolls, the limitation of impact to four atolls is enshrined in the compact. Um, should we talk about the compact? Now? Let's do that now, um, yeah. So in that section 177, there's a provision, there was an agreement that was developed based on that section 177 to operationalize it. And that's the health program and the establishment of the nuclear claims tribunal and um, a provision in there known as changed circumstances, which gave the Marshall Islands an opportunity to come back to the US to request additional funding should there be a determination of changed circumstances based on new information or um, any new findings. 
So in 2000, the Marshall Islands submitted a change circumstances petition to Congress. That would be the first national effort to address the testing that I mentioned in the beginning with the Nuclear Commission kind of being the second. But um, that change circumstances petition was submitted to Congress in 2000 and then it sat and Congress asked, it was a very strong petition. It laid out all of the data. It made a very strong case for how we know so much more now than we did at the time in the, in the 1980s when we agreed to this um, that suggests that actually what we agreed to in the 1980s was wrong. Mani manifestly inadequate is the term we use often um, in terms of the funding for the tribunal and also the known health impacts. So Congress requested the administration to provide a response which it did in 2005, rejecting all the claims of changed circumstances. And then that was it. So that was the Bush administration? Yeah. And that was it. And you know, Marshall Islands also went through new administrations and um, there was never any additional effort after that. There was no other, no formal response from Congress. Um, there's some question about whether the U.S. needed to or the Congress had to respond. In my mind, yes, it's logical. If I petition you, you respond to my petition. Um, maybe that's not always, I don't know, people have different views about that. So, so that was the 177 agreement. Um, that allowed that petition to take place. So let's talk about the tribunal, which was part of that agreement um, in the establishment of the Nuclear Claims Tribunal, which set up by mutual agreement between these two governments to handle all claims of damages um, from nuclear testing in the Marshall Islands. So this tribunal is set up in the marshals, um, tribunal judges are hired, you know, fully staffed, and they start to receive claims. And they are claims of personal injury and property damage. So the tribunal modeled its structure for compensation largely after the Downwinders Act in the US. So it followed a lot of that precedent for um, claims and eligibility for claims and how claims would be handled based on the Downwinders Act. What, what's so the Downwinders Act? So that was the US law that recognized people affected by the Nevada tests in the, those surrounding states uh, as a compensation um, structure. So the tribunal starts to receive personal injury claims it starts to develop a list of illnesses that are compensable. And that list changes over time. I mean, I'm kind of <laughs> probably not doing enough justice to this history, but I'm trying to kind of put this in a nutshell. Um, this is the spark notes over the, all of the runite dome, so it's okay. <laughs> so yeah, this is just a, a scratching the surface of this history. 
So the tribunal is um, hearing these petitions or yeah, for personal injury claims and um, issuing awards, different monetary damage awards for different illnesses to all these people from throughout the Marshall Islands, not just limited to the four atolls. So the tribunal adopted a, a more nationwide approach um, and it starts to hear property damage claims and the first one it hears is from the people of Inuitak. And that was decided before the change circumstances petition in 2000. So they issue this property damage awards in Inuitak, which includes three components. One is hardship, one is loss of use, um, and the other is, oh, now I'm blanking. Oh, it's, it's cleanup, it's the, um, it's the award for literal environmental like, cleanup. Yeah. yeah, it's um, you know, using soil, topsoil removing technologies, things like that. So these are the components, the main components of the award. And then it hears the petition from Bikini Atoll, Utrecht, and these are all big awards. They're in the several hundreds of millions. I think Utrecht was the smallest, and then Rongelap comes last. And the award is about just over one billion. So you have all of these awards, but none of them can get paid in full because the tribunal has run out of funds. So the initial funding to the tribunal in the 1986 compact was 150 million. And it was to be invested and then produce an annual return at a certain level that was deemed to be sufficient to address future claims, past and future claims. Okay, but then you had a market crash that nobody thought about. <laughs> you know, the investments don't pan out the way they're meant to. But not only that, you have a volume of claims for a level of need that no one anticipated when it, 150 million was agreed to. But because you had the change circumstances provision that allowed you an opportunity to make a case for additional funding based on inf new information. You know, I'm, I'm walking through what I think our leaders were thinking at the time. It, it's, it's simplistic because there were other issues there. There were other issues about um, sovereignty versus the you know, remaining as a trusteeship or, you know, joining the rest of Micronesia. Those were all other issues going on at the same time as well. But, okay, so let's just break it down and be a little simplistic about this. You take the 150 million, you don't really know what it's going to cost. You don't know what you're going to deal with. But just in case you've got this provision that'll allow you to up the amount if you find that it's not enough. Only that provision didn't work. And the amount was manifestly inadequate. So you've got all these personal injury claims that have never been able to be paid 100% in full. All of them were paid at varying levels, um, different percentage levels. No one got their full amount. And a lot of people died before they got anything. And then you have the property damage claims of huge numbers with only very small amounts being paid and each one received some payment, but very small. 
So that's the tribunal situation. So the tribunal runs out of funds in 2009 and then basically ceases to operate a few years later. Officially, we never really shut it down. However, it is not a functioning office. Um, the Nuclear Commission has taken custody of the files. All of the files have been digitized and they're in archives, two separate archives. Um, but that is, that is unfinished business in a really big way. You know, capital U, that is really unfinished business. You have people, like we were talking earlier about how all these decisions were being made in the 40s and, you know, US leadership are making decisions that maybe they don't know the full extent of the impact. Marshallese are accepting what they're being told because nobody, just nobody knows for sure. There's a lot of un uncertainty. Now we know a lot and we maybe know most of what we need to know, except we, there are still classified documents. So there's still a lot of information that's not known to us, but we know a lot more now. And we know how bad it is. And you can, you can make that right. You can compensate people for the loss they continue to experience today, for the people who continue to be dislocated from their islands, where their ancestors lived, and that's part of them. You can, can compensate people and you can make it right for people who are sick and have to be dislocated again to get treatment overseas. But it's like, that's what we're dealing with. So, okay, we, we didn't know what happened then, but we know what happens now. And we know here's one way you can fix it. And even, you know, and that is still just this almost impossible reach. Um, it's actually the subject of ongoing and current discussions that we're having right now with the US. So I can't go into too much detail on that. That is why the Nuclear Commission was established, was to address these outstanding issues. There are many forms of justice, and we held dozens of meetings with stakeholders over a year and a half because we were developing a strategy. That was our main um, task. And justice comes in a lot of forms. It's um, knowledge, it's education about the history and empowerment. It's um, access to health care. Um, and it's compensation. No question. Compensation is probably universally the biggest form and maybe the best form in a lot of ways because we're all so, you know, we're, cash is king. Compensation. And when you're wronged, you get compensated. These are these are normal constructs now that we have in the world. When you do something you bad to somebody, you compensate them somehow, and nobody's going to turn down money. But when you've got these huge awards sitting there, and they're not being paid, and you're thinking, but that's what I'm owed. That's what I deserve. I mean, it, it, it is that simple. Take away all the other things about what we know or what we think all the damage we think money can do to us and how money ruins us and all that. Take away all of that. The fact is you were wronged. You were awarded a judgment for that wrong, but that has never been implemented and not at any fault of your own. 
and you have very little power to make it happen. So I should probably stop talking about that because like I said, it's the subject of some discussions we're having right now between our governments and um, it's very political, it's sensitive for sure. But that is, that is essentially where we are at this point. Um, when we're talking about outstanding issues, a lot of it comes down to righting that wrong through compens fair compensation to people who suffered the damages, who sacrificed unknowingly so that the U.S. could reign supreme in this particular military technology. Um, so yeah, that's where we are. Yeah. I, um, I was having a conversation once with a, with a really uh, old friend of mine. Um, and he's, he's very, uh, he's very religious. I'm, I'm not religious. Um, and we were talking about money and I was like, uh, Dave, how do you reconcile money with uh, religion? And he said something to me that I honestly think about a lot. And he goes, um, money is freedom. And it's not that I want money. It's that I want safety and freedom. And it's an, it's, I'm accepting the game. And he said it to me like this. He said, I'm accepting the game. And the game is you need money for freedom and safety. So I don't think there's a some in the world that is worth a pound of flesh, but it is definitely going to get you the freedom to be able to live a different life than you are now according to given the fact that you've lost that pound of flesh. So if it's building hospitals and care facilities or it's building shelter to be able to withstand increasing threat of storms um, or sea level rise um, or any number of things that you are now facing let alone what you're also facing because of the immense suffering that is put onto you in order to uh, have a scientific experiment run and literally run in your, I, I don't want to say backyard because it seems like it diminishes it. It's, it's your, your ancestral land, ancestral land. And I, I, I honestly believe that one of the big increases of depression these days is not just because of capitalism and consumerism and, you know, the, the worship of, of false idols. But I, I also think it's because we don't have an access to tradition and any type of ancestral tie to anything anymore. So to have that ripped away from you in such a jarring way, um, that is literally the, the, the light of the sun that did it. And then now having to live with, you know, the 70 years of fallout since then, let alone the 100 years before that, that was also more imperial suffering, just in a different color of a banner. Um, yes, I, th I think, you know, and, and, you know, to your, your comment earlier, earlier of in 2006, should Congress have responded? You're damn right, they should have responded. I don't, I'm, I'm pretty upset that they didn't because, you know, this is, you know, manifestly inadequate, I think is, is a great legal term to, to say, like, what the hell were you thinking? And this isn't right. We now, we now understand what we got ourselves into. And, you know, um, you, you know, the, the, the game you agreed to, which is, you know, we're going to agree to this compact. We're going to agree by play by your rules. And you did that. And you did that without realizing the, the stakes in which you were up against. And now that there is there, um, I think you have every right to, <laughs> to have that compact changed and, and quite starkly, let alone the fact that you played, like, again, you played by those rules. You went through the tribunals, which could not have been easy for anyone who had to be going through that. Um, let alone, you know, what they were dealing with in their own personal lives. Um, 
to then say, well, wait, hold on a second. I played by your rules and your rules told me I'm supposed to get this. And what do you mean? I don't get this. This is, this is just another example of, um, trusting something and, and kind of having the, the ground taken out from underneath you. So, um, I wish you, I, I don't want to ask you any more questions. I don't want to get you into anything with the, you know, the negotiations that are happening now, but I wish you all the luck with that because, um, I think it's, it's about damn time that something was done. Yeah. Thank you. Um, so I, I want to ask a, a question about the Runit dome. Um, mm-hmm. so it is, is the dome itself a concern? Like is the containing of the material that's in there a concern? And the reason I'm asking that is if there is so much of the, um, radioactive material is not actually being housed in that how much is the islands themselves a concern versus how much the material that's in it because I'm, I'm asking this to follow it up with a second question yeah it's definitely a concern for the community who are living nearby and um, just not knowing what the cumulative impact would be of having that chronic exposure to that radioactive waste that's just um, not far away from them. We have only had DOE studies to rely on. We've never had an independent study um, to the extent that DOE has studied the island. So we also have a public trust issue. So what I'm telling you is based on the DOE data, but I should also let you know that most people don't trust it. So while the DOE data is showing that um, uptakes of cesium, cesium-137 is typically the main pathway is through food, comes in through food crops. So there's whole body, there are whole body counters in the Marshall Islands. There's one in Madro in the capital, and I believe there's one in Inuitak too. Um, DOE data from the whole body counters is saying that cesium levels are low, but for me, what's missing from that is how much of the diet is still based on local food. And it's not very much. And there's a reason for that, <laughs> because it's not safe. So I think there's parts of the story that are not connecting in ways that are giving people enough comfort that the risk isn't bigger than it is. Um, the containment itself of the, by the dome Yeah, I mean, when most of the radiation is outside the dome, then it does, in a way, make the the threat of the dome breaking apart less scary because it's already out there. Um, But I think that's just, you know, it's a piece of a much bigger puzzle or a much much bigger picture there. Um, You still don't want that dome breaking apart. And DOE tells us that, Uh, Maybe in an extreme weather event, it's possible there could be some cracking or some breaking. I mean, we don't know. I think it's lasted for a long time. There's definitely groundwater mixing with the lagoon water under the dome. And there's there's a plutonium fingerprint there, but they don't know how much of it is, like I said, from the dome itself or already in the lagoon. We're just really lacking independent review. And that's an effort we've been taking up since the nuclear commission was started trying we we can identify independent scientists and and groups to come and do the work but funding it is a completely different story 
It turns out that when you are a strong military partner with the U.S., you don't want to fund these radiation studies in the Marshall Islands. <laughs> you don't want to touch that. <laughs> so we're still on the hunt for some funding sources to help us get the study done because it will be incredibly technical and um, resource intensive because we're talking about deep core drilling in the lagoon floor and a lot of laboratory work over a period of time. Um, yeah, so the, here, here comes my second part of the question. Um, how much is the shifting climatic events of, that we're experiencing? So by that being more intense weather, um, as well as a rising sea, right? Which um, I, I, you're, gonna, you're gonna correct me, I hope if I'm wrong here. Um, <laughs> I think that the high tides are getting higher there Right. And um, I don't know what it's called there. I, I had it written down um, I, in um, San Diego. We call it the King tide where every like mm -hmm. once like a week out of every year, we get a King tide. Mm -hmm. So it's um, like extremely high. Um, mm -hmm. And I know that here the locals are rather naive. They don't realize how much higher it's getting. Um, but I don't believe an island nation such as yourself would be in such a, a place. So my, my question is how much are the shifting patterns of the climate vis-a-vis more intense storms, as well as higher uh, extreme tides, how are they affecting all of these atolls? And, and maybe we can even just say the ruin it uh, dome itself, um, because I would imagine you know that sediment probably would stay in lag the lagoon if it's you know near sea level or still a considered a lagoon. But if you know the sea level rises a meter, it's no longer a lagoon; it's just a low lying body of water now, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, we have king tides too, and they are more frequent. Um, and being low-lying atolls, sea level rise is a daily, uh, daily thought for many. But um, yeah, so rising sea levels around the Runet Dome will definitely increase the mixing in the groundwater in the lagoon. But like you just said, a lot of it will probably settle in the lagoon floor in the sediment. And again, most of it's already in the lagoon. So I think what we would see is something, um, because we could s see it happening, that's what makes it feel so scary. And um, oh, what's the word I'm looking for? But, um, but in terms of, of its impact for radiation, I think it would still be relatively small based on the DOE data. But regardless, you still don't want this dome breaking apart <laughs> necessarily. Um, I read a headline recently, and I, I didn't have a chance to go back to the article yet, that some scientific studies are showing that some of the islands are actually um, rising or gaining more land. So I think we need to keep that in mind. Um, it might just be one study, but... Um, Climate change and sea level rise in the Marshall Islands, that discussion is focused on adaptation and how best to protect the islands from being completely inundated. So this is, these are things like seawall and landfill, major infrastructure development type projects and discussions that are extremely expensive, um, but that's the climate change discussion. 
Yes, RUNIT is part of that. Yes, the nuclear legacy is part of that in as much as the overlap is on displacement, forced displacement. But the focus is really on how to protect all of the islands so that people don't have to leave. And then I would say that radiation and RUNIT is a secondary concern, but not secondary in a not important way, just you know, forefront of mind is protecting all of the islands through adaptation um, techniques and projects. I've put it this way before on the show. It's uh, in, in transforming it to the situation. It's uh, sea level rise is the barbarians at the gates and the walls are still falling down, but we got to deal with the barbarians at the gates first. Mm -hmm. um, oh, good analogy. Mm -hmm. I'm stealing it from J.M. Cote's. Uh, he has a great book, uh, Waiting on the Barbarians. Um, okay. It, it's, it's worth checking out because it's a challenge to imperialism. That's the whole premise of the book, actually. Um, that's, uh, I'm going to be thinking, uh, I try my best to, to keep uh, conversations flowing in these uh, when I do these. And uh, I just let myself unpack them later on walks with my dog. Um, <laughs> but I'm telling you right now, I'm going to be very emotional thinking about but two of the things that you said, um, one of them was the thinking it was snow. And the second one is uh, the fact that uh, sea level rise is a daily thought. Um, because I, I talked with um, Dr. Heiko Balser. He's a professor at the University of Leicestershire. Um, and he uses satellites to map the earth. Um, and I said something to him and I was really hoping for him to correct me, but he didn't. He actually expanded on it. And I said, uh, the permafrost melting keeps me up at night. And sometimes I wake up in the middle of the night and I get really worried um, because I don't think people realize that sea level rise is a really big problem. Um, and I think, you know, coming from the States, um, we live in a continent. And I think that that's something that gets taken for granted. Um, you know, like uh, the manifest destiny that was sold to us, uh, or at least some of the people that were here, um, was that we were going to conquer a continent. And I think that that insulates us from a lot of these thoughts um, and, you know, part of that is the fact that the, you know, most of the world lives, you know, I think it's like 52% of the world lives within a hundred miles of the coast. Um, so uh, most people are going to be affected by this, but when we live in such an isolated area in a sense of not in the sense you're isolated, you're truly isolated in the middle of an ocean. Um, we're isolated because we have so much resource and, and might, um, and in the way we architect the rest of the world that we're insulated from a lot of it. But the, the truth is, is that this is a daily problem that we're not seeing yet. Um, and a lot of the ways that you, these testing and the legacy is a daily problem, but now kind of the fallout of the effect of the world and the kind of the, um, <laughs> the world, I, the word I almost want to use is, I'm going to say this sarcastically, but the world peace that was brought um, from nuclear weapons um, has brought a legacy, which now is bringing sea level rise to your door again. Um, so from the deepest part of my heart, I'm so sorry this is happening. This is, this is um, really tragic and very frustrating for me to, to, to understand uh, because this is, it, it's, it's unfortunate. And I, and I hope that more light gets shined on this. Um, yeah. I'm happy that you're doing this. I'm really happy about this. I'm very happy that the Nuclear Commission has got off the ground and uh, you guys have been going through this because this is, it's, it's clearly not going to go away, right? And 
it's better to tackle it now than and, and get as much out there as you can than more kind of happening. And I hope that it doesn't, with your current talks, it doesn't get silenced. And with more of these um, barbarians coming to the gates and more of these bills that we wrote come due, um, I hope that you're, you're definitely getting at the attention that you deserve, especially in this particular instance. Yeah, thank you. Um, and you're right. I mean, here we are facing another problem, not of our own doing, but it's an existential threat yet again. But I will say that, you know, Marshallese and I think island people in general, we're survivors. You said earlier, these atolls, these are rough environments. And atolls are the, are the oldest geological structures. Marshallese, my ancestors came to these islands hundreds of years ago and survived and thrived. I think that was the word you said. So there is definitely some um, victimization as a result of these, these events that are beyond our control. But ultimately, I think island peoples are survivors. <laughs> and, you know, inevitably, who knows what's going to happen? I, and then hopefully it's, it's not as dire as, as our predictions show. I'm not, I'm not that optimistic, but I will keep a space for hope in there in my brain somewhere um, that the islands won't cease to exist. I hope that it will never be the case, but it won't just be us. We will not be the only ones who are, you know, if that, if these predictions, the most, the worst of them come true, we won't be the only ones um, that become historical memories. I mean, Manhattan Island is going to be underwater too. So, <laughs> and many islands in the Pacific and other areas of the world, climate change comes in a lot of forms, not just sea level rise. So I guess I say that just to make myself feel a little bit better that we're not in this alone, we're not fighting this alone, and that, um, you know, with, with everyone working on solutions or in our case, adaptation techniques, because we're not the polluters, we're not the creators. Um, but I just have faith in innovation and technology. And, um, you know, if you can see islands, whole islands being built in China and Dubai, why can't we reinforce ours? We know we can, it's a cost thing, but are we really gonna let entire countries just cease to exist if we have ways to stop that. I have more faith in humanity and I hope I don't eat those words or that my daughter or her children don't have to, you know, fight that same sediment because it's so pessimistic. But I just, I, I can't believe or accept that the absolute worst will happen when there are ways to prevent it or ways around it. Yeah, I, I appreciate that. It's making me think about your answer to happiness in the beginning and your answer was I'm content. And I, I appreciate that. Um, you know, there was a conversation I had um, with a different uh, guest and the, the line of thought that we kind of landed on is um, this is the worst time that all of these conundrums can be happening at once because of the convergence of them all. Um, mm -hmm. But at the same time, this is the best time it ever could have happened because of the interconnectivity of us and the, the access to inf information. Um, and something else I've, I've mentioned before um, is I try not to believe in hope, which sounds like a little bit of hyperbolic. But what I mean by that is if you hope something is, is, is or isn't going to happen, it's a bit of a passive act. 
um, where if you build faith, it's an active thing and it, it, you can start building and moving towards something. And I think if a lot of what you just said right there is you're building faith and, you know, if, if we can do this, if, you know, the, the Chinese and uh, the South China Sea can all of a sudden just spread up whole airfields out of nothing but water, you know, why, why can't we do something here? Um, you know, and if there's other places in the world that are, are having this happen to, why can't we share that knowledge of what they're doing and, and whatnot and be able to bring that here? I, and no one, I, and I think that that's really the truth of it. It's, you know, when we face something that is as large and existential, existential as this, we can either, to steal from J.M. Cotes again, we can either point a finger and create a barbarian and create something as an other, or we can point it back inwards and say, well, what the hell are we going to do about it then? Um, and and I, I think that there's a lot of, I, in this conversation, I have a lot of faith in, in being able to do that. Um, and, and both from what you all are doing there and, and recognizing it, because I think one of the things that I get frustrated, at least, you know, in, in American politics is how much we're unwilling to just even have the conversation for a lot of things. And, and I say that on both sides of the aisle, you know, we're not willing to have the conversation where, um, I, you know, my only fear is that it's going to be to the point where it's going to be a lot more costly than it would have been otherwise. But uh, I think with, yeah. you know, individuals such as yourself taking the, the t- time to, you know, express this and, and having it be your, your work, you know, to, to do this. Um, I, it's the tip of the spear. And, and I think that that's, it is going to build faith and it is going to build a better future. Cause I think we can, like, I think mm-hmm. to that, that point again, I think, you know, at no point in, in, in time, could we ever have a, a species take over the world and, and fuck it up, but we can never have another species that could take over the world and make it better than it's ever been. Right. So um, I think mm-hmm. both of those things are true. Um, Thank you. I'm not gonna. I'm gonna leave this conversation in a few in a few minutes. A lot more energized than I did before. So thank you for, for doing that. Um, I, I want to ask one another question about the Runet Dome, um, and that's in the LA Times article. They pointed out that it wasn't just waste from the atoll that was collected there. It was also imported waste. Is that the ca- Is that also the case? This is the soil brought in from Nevada. Yes. Yeah, that, um, most of the information on that was new to us. Um, There was soil, I think it was 120, 130 tons of soil brought in from Nevada to, um, well, to do what? We're not entirely sure, to cover up the failed test. Um, I know that DOE claims that it was clean soil from Nevada, not from a testing site. But again, I think when we're talking about radiation around any testing site, we have to use these terms clean and safe relatively. Um, I think what's more concerning is that the leadership, the Inuitak leadership, were not fully aware of that soil. It is in a report. It is a, it's buried in a 1982 I think it's a DOD or Atomic Energy Commission report. Um, You know, right there in the middle of all the scientific speak that you gotta be a scientist or a PhD to understand. But I think what it points to is the larger problem of key information not being readily accessible and easily available to either communities, decision makers, landowners to be able to understand what they're living with or living nearby or what actually took place on their islands. So 
And I don't think we could put our hand on our heart and say, we never knew about this because it's there. But it, it just speaks to a larger systemic issue with this whole history of information being inaccessible to the people who need it the most. That makes Which sense. Which is a form of justice, information, because it, it, it empowers you to make decisions and to understand your surroundings and the risks in your environment and just, you know. Knowledge is power, right? It's, it seems right. like a cliche, but um, the it's truth true. behind that cliche is the mm -hmm. fact that with the knowledge and understanding of, I mean, it goes back to, you know, the story about your mother, you know, like mm -hmm. she didn't have any knowledge of the fact of who these people were and what they were doing there. Right. She was just startled by this, this new type of person that I haven't seen before. Right. Um, and then the, the fallout, like what, even the concept of fallout is a new understanding, right? Like even like the, the fallout act uh, or the downwind act, you know, that wasn't, I know when they were doing the nuclear tests in Nevada, the, the first couple ones, they weren't aware of a fallout of what it was or, or how to deal with it. Um, so somebody, you know, who just all of a sudden had an explosion happen a few days ago, isn't going to understand it. And, and the knowledge of what to do with that is, well, maybe in 1986, when you're signing this accord, all of a sudden it's going to be a little bit different. Right. Um, so to continue to kind of find information, um, it, uh, it begs the question of what else isn't in there. So like, going back to knowledge and information is flooding you with the amount of information that you have to sift through that's unclassified is yeah. one thing, which is one way of suppressing knowledge is I'm going to overload you with things to go through. Mm -hmm. And then the second mm -hmm. one is I'm going to withhold. Um, mm -hmm. So it makes, it begs the question of what's in the information that you have, but you, you, you know what I mean? You have to sift through in, intentional jargon um, mm -hmm. or uh, just having it be one line of a footnote, you know what I mean? That if somebody didn't have enough coffee when they were reading, perhaps they'd kind of glance over, right? Um, and then also what, you know, what's in the correspondence that's sealed. Um, yeah. This is a web of conundrums um, mm -hmm. that uh, I, I honestly can't believe isn't getting uh, much attention. Um, I know there was that New York or LA times article in, in 2018. And then it was like, I know there was like a flash in the pan for a few days of that. And then it kind of went out of the news. Um, so you're, you're currently in talks right now to, to re up this, this agreement and that's happening over the, even with COVID and all of that, it's and changes administration and all of that that's still ongoing. Yeah, it's actually, um, the economic provisions of the compact are expiring in 2023, so we're just starting discussions on those now. The entire agreement itself is not expiring. But back to your point about information and how the story came out in the LA Times and then it's kind of died down a bit. That actually, that story had the highest readership in Washington, D.C. of any other LA Times story in 2019. So that was a really promising statistic for us because that meant that people were being educated and that's why the information is so important because if you're not if you don't understand what's happening and you don't you can't tell the story and then you can't do anything about whatever's still left to be done but our education begins with ourselves so we're putting a lot of effort into 
our, our school, our national school curriculum and educating our young people and the next generation. And we hire interns to work with the commission because we need more Marshallese to know and understand our history because these are issues that will be going on for a very long time. And if you don't get the information out there where people can understand it and, and know it, in, you know, inherently know it and understand it, then that history will die. And that's true for any story, any, anyone's history. But that's also why that digitization project and the archive project of the tribunal was so important. And I cannot stress enough how critical that was. And I came into the commission at a time when that project was just being finished up. And I didn't have enough appreciation for it at the time, but I certainly have it now. Um, to have those records archived and safe, that's our body of evidence. That's not just our history. That's our body of evidence. That is proof that these things happened and this is how bad it was. And this is what was done and what was not done. I mean, it's all the tribunal records and references and um, notes and under a very carefully guarded system. They're sitting in the Swiss Federal Archives and the city of Girona, Spain, Municipal Archives. So they're divided. Videos, audio and um, paper files. But that is the foundation of making sure that we reach some level of justice, however that's defined by the individual for the impact of this legacy that we will always have. It's that information. So I completely agree with you that the more information we can get that is distilled into terms and informs that the everyday person can understand and use, the better off we'll all be. Um, we, have, we still have a ways to go. There's a lot of scientific reporting out there that is um, intentionally full of jargon that is very difficult to get through and, and uh, process. Yeah. And, you know, as I think Chernobyl, like there's a Netflix show or something like that that got very popular. Mm -hmm. Um, and I, I think one of the things that people took away from with that is what a half-life is. So the amount of time that, you know, a nuclear detonation, um, needs in order for half of the amount of radiation to decay to a point where it's half of what it was there is incredibly long. So for, you know, as long as, you know, your people have been in these islands is quite possibly even longer the legacy that the, these detonations are going to have there. Um, mm -hmm. So I, I think understanding that, to your point, understanding it and reconciling it is, is in, it is going to be the legacy of, I mean, it's unfortunate, but it really is going to be the legacy of a lot of the Marshallese for a, a long time to come. Um, and I'm happy to, I'm happy to hear that the, the commission is together. I'm happy to hear that those are digitized. Um, and mm -hmm. I'm, and thank you for taking the time to, uh, to talk with me because I think this is another means of doing what you just said of trying to find this into, you know, a, a narrative that is as easy to get somebody started, right? Like this isn't, uh, this isn't the whole story. This isn't, 
you know, everything, but this is at least a, a way that I hope people are, are shocked into looking this up more because this is an, an, an incredible legacy to have to contend with and uh, let alone everything else. I mean, globalization itself is its own set of conundrums, which when we were on the phone talking last, we're chatting about of, you know, what diets change and how that affects people and, you know, importing food or having more processed foods and what that kind of the conundrums that brings, let alone also having all of this. And, you know, I think really the time we live in is, is the con- convergence of conundrums to try to figure out a way to sort it all out. So, um, you know, we can, we can wrap in a second and I, w- I would love to chat with you for a second before I let you go, but, you know, mm-hmm. thank you again for, uh, taking the time. This is, this is an incredible story. And I, I don't mean that incredible in a good way, but incredible in a way of, I, I can't believe this all happened and quite to the depth of it, it that it did. Um, and thank you very much for the time. I, I'd love to have you on again to kind of dive into some more of these things. Um, and also to kind of, I would love to keep chat, uh, chatting and seeing how the chords are going. And, um, you know, if there's anything I can do with this humble podcast or anything in my career for where this takes me or anything else goes, I'm not going to forget about this. And I really want to do whatever it is I can, because this is an, an incredible scar that we have to contend with, I think, as a world. I appreciate that. Um, thank you for the opportunity to share our story, because like I said, it isn't in the mainstream. So we definitely, we look forward to the opportunities and I'm grateful that you've given me so much time today to share just a little bit. Like you said, there's so much more to the story and you know, maybe we'll find time another time to continue. But I really hope that people will go and look into a bit more and understand the contributions that the Marshall Islands have made essentially to world peace at a time when things were extremely unstable in the world. That's a, that's a great point. Well, thank you very much.